0: All right, please take out your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 9. Before I get into this, I wanted to share a little bit of news, a little bit of thanksgiving. Um, Following the service, I'm actually jetting out of here very quickly. I'm heading over to the island for an installation service Nathan Giesbrecht. Some of you will remember Nathan. He has preached here several times. He has finished his time up at our Down Seminary, at the Master's Seminary, and he's now coming back to plant a church in the, oh man, where's my directions? West Shore, kind of souk area of um, Victoria area. Having pastored in that area, I can tell you it is no treat that he's going into. It is a very exceptionally rocky territory. I spend much time counseling, talking, uh, praying for pastors that are on in that area. Even just this past week, uh, a friend of mine, he's at a Calvary Chapel, just dealing with issues that most people can't comprehend and He is just tenderly trying to love his sheep, and many of them continue to leave and break legs and run into fences and eat poison grass, and he is always there um, caring for them, which kind of led me to thinking about you guys this week and um, made me appreciate how much I love you Um, this past month. In October, we had Pastor Appreciation Month, and I thank you so much for the encouraging words, cards, and kind gifts, and I promise to use them towards golf or making my wife happy. But um, one of the things that um, had me thinking about is I'm just so thankful for you. I'm thankful for the music team that comes and, and, and plays. I'm thankful for for the people that welcome, the people who serve with the children. And I have to say, we are not the most organized church, but we work. (laughs) By the grace of God, we continue. Uh, We are blessed with gifted counselors like Dave who are able to dig deep into um, troubles, um, trials, thorns of life. Um, But one of the things I continue to say to my friends is, I hope one day you get a chance to pastor in a church like I do in Squamish where um, there's maturity, there's been a desire for God's word for decades long before I ever showed up here. And it demonstrates, and I'll tell you where it shows up the most, is um, the guest preachers. Um, Last week we had Clarence, and over the summer we had my, my best friend Leo, we had Matt, and everyone just comes and they just state, Man, what a blessing you have there. When are you quitting so I can apply? Um, But there is a love to be here and to be with you and to cherish just unity, um, not even just at the overall church level, but the board level as well, just as we make decisions. And one of the things that every man gets excited about is I rejoice when I come in here on a, a Wednesday when I'm coming to work and this Place is filled with women studying god 's word. I get thrilled that men show up to study every man a warrior and and some guys are even taking it again because they want to continue to sharpen themselves and we really believe as elders that that is the a, a road to developing leaders and if you guys don 't know it every once a month the leadership team comes together and we study god 's words and we kind of study it in the light of what um, how to think biblically through trials that churches have, and I, I just want to thank you so much for that. Let me just pray for you. Dear Lord, Heavenly Father, what it is, when we just even when we think about this membership and people being a part of the body, the reality is by our new birth in Christ, we have put inside your body and we are joined with you. There's an automatic membership of people who commit, love, and serve one another. I know Dave and I, as many times as we we, we spend time together talking about the sheep. What a pleasure it is to pray, encourage, and to see some grow. We look at people who've repented from sin and turned back. We've seen uh, old family wounds healed. Um, people moving forward in their marriages. Um, desiring to love their children and to parent them. We give you thanks for so many faithful servants who've come along to help from Chris Hamilton to uh, Matt King and um, even Clarence just coming to deal with some of the apologetic aspects and every single one of them just speaks of the sweetness of spirit that exists for those who love you and they see that in this body, oh God. We thank you for that. And just from me, oh God, I pray that the people would do indeed understand that I do love them, care for them, and um, we demonstrate it by loving, praying, and delivering this word to them in the best way possible. We ask these things in your most loving and caring name. Amen. So if you think of Nathan, please think of a prayer time. David Corrente is going over with me to be a part of the installation, and that's a whole other thing. Wasn't last week really great, just that coming together listen we ran you guys hard right last week we had church of 99 joined us and then we had this fellowship dinner and then we went into a worship night and um some people were tired and it's okay it was great and you guys didn't know i took the kids to langley for the youth retreat like if that wasn't a treat i don't know what is so um Let us all praise God. So let's turn to Romans 9. As you may or may not know, I decided to do this type of an excursus study. An excursus, just kind of a segue. We've been in the the book of Romans, but we got this... There's this conflict that is happening in the world. And I was just thinking about this conflict, how this conflict seems to create conflict in other places. If you only notice, there's not... (coughs) too many quote-unquote wars in the world that create debate in our own homes, in our own countries. Um, Just even this week, hearing from different pastors and what's going on. So a couple of weeks ago, and I know we got interrupted with, um, so the issue is what about Israel? Sorry, my voice is given out again. The first part of the series, and it went back to all the way to October, I was supposed to do back to back, but God be praised, Matt, and some other people were able to hear to come in and share their gifts with us. I did kind of a historical overview on Israel, and if you had any questions, <coughs> and I'm thankful for the feedback that people said, it does help us make sense of the events that are going on. A lot of it, I leaned on my old political career. Um, We looked at how former Israel was established in Genesis 12, and we looked at the modern-day establishment of Israel in 1948. Um, And as I said, whenever there seems to be some level of conflict in Israel, there's conflict elsewhere. But there also becomes questions that happen in the church. Certain questions are asked. And how churches approach the topic of Israel, and as I stated before, is largely dependent upon which church tradition you grew up in. If you grew up in perhaps a Brethren or a Pentecostal church or a church that, and and, and please forgive me, there's going to be a lot of technical Names, words I'm going to use, I'm going to try to explain them. But how you see the end times affects how many people think about Israel. So if you hold to a pre millennial position, that means that Jesus Christ will come before the millennial kingdom, which is described in Revelations 20, you believe there is a place for Israel. And if you don't know, some churches get involved. Their their job is to defend Israel, support Israel, be all about reaching as many Jews as possible for the gospel. It becomes a focus. So like I said, those tend to be Pentecostal brethren, both Mennonite, uh, um, Plymouth brethren. um, And for the most part in North America, that was the predominant position of churches. If you grew up perhaps... Presbyterian or Anglican or or Catholic background, it generally means that you do not have much of a position on Israel. Or if you do, you just believe Israel in the New Testament is something different than Israel in the Old Testament. Now, I didn't mention Baptists because Baptists kind of be, they're, they're kind of all over because we're like a swarm of bees, right? We're all over the place and we all have these different views. But, um, so, why is that? Why the disparity in what Christians believe? Why is there debate? Sometimes there's serious debate, sometimes there's simply um, academic debate, and the truth be told, it can be quite complex. Now, my goal this morning is to take a highly technical issue and I want to reduce it to the most untechnical way possible. I want you to be able to understand this, I want you to be able to have. Um, Not only informed conversations, I also want you to see the glory of God in it all too. (laughs) Because that's ultimately why I preach the glory of God. Now the reality is when we speak about these end times issues or what's going on in Israel, it involves, um, the theological term is hermeneutics. That word basically means it's how we interpret the Bible. What rules do we follow? It also affects, like I said, eschatology, which is our end times theology, and the books that generally talk about end times are a lot of the minor prophets, the book of Revelation, the book of Daniel, and the book of Zechariah. All these books are vitally important for understanding end times. We also have this thing called systematic theology, and I'll just explain to you systematic theology. There's books. I have several of them in my office. And these books attempt to systematize everything that's in the Bible. And I would recommend everyone having a systematic theology. So you can look up, and it's not like a concordance that just shows you the verbs that inc- or the verses that have a certain word. You can talk about what is the doctrine of God, and you'll find the comments and they'll go through history and all these different, and they'll give you the different verses and explain why they do. And they kind of put all the verses together in that area. So you have the doctrine of the Bible. So every systematic theology will have many chapters on how to think about the Bible. Then there'll be the doctrine of God. Then they'll have the doctrine of man, doctrine of the Holy Spirit. You with me on this? Doctrine essentially means teachings, So you get the combined teachings. Now the problem with systematic theology is we get this system. And the problem is, say we get this system of framework, and it helps us. I have a, a system framework that helps me understand the flow of Scripture. It's when certain passages of the Bible don't really fit in my system. So you start trying to fit the Bible into your system rather than making your system fit into the Bible. You, you hear me on that? That's a danger. And any, any good theologian recognizes that. There's problems. Systematic theologies and thinking systematically through things is simply a tool. It doesn't, it's not greater than God's word. You with me on that one? God's word is obviously the be-all, end-all of truth. Amen. But God, in his favor, has given us scholars, people who combine these things together um, to help us understand. And all these influences will affect how we view Israel and ultimately how we understand the church. If you remember, going back a couple of weeks ago, I asked a question. The question was, do the events in the Middle East matter more than other tragic events around the world? We could uh, think of um, Eritrea. We have family here from Eritrea. We have, um, you guys can look back to Yugoslavia, which used to be, we've had people here from Rwanda. Um, Those were horrible epicenters of true evil crimes against humanity. Um, I had, I don't know if it's the pleasure or displeasure of just even working for a short time with the UN war a tribunal tracking down people who were guilty of war crimes in those areas. It is ugly. It is ugly. Is what is going on in Israel any more significant from a physical side point? No, I don't believe it is. I believe God's heart breaks for any person who's been grievously hurt. We are all created in the image of God. The Bible makes that quite clear. We all have a purpose, but sadly, we live in North America, and we tend to be picky about what moves us emotionally. Unless the government mentions it or the press, we tend to be oblivious to what goes on around the world. So my first response is, the events in the Middle East significant. In some ways, no, but in some ways, yes. Christians, for the most part, believe that the events occurring now in the Middle East are biblically and spiritually significant. And the key questions Christians need to ask themselves is, what place does ethnic Israel play in future events? Or to put it rather bluntly, does Israel and the Jews still matter? Do Israel and the Jews still matter? So there's three things I'd like to accomplish this morning with you. One, I want to answer the question, does Israel and the Jews still matter to God? That's the first thing I want to answer for you. The second issue I want to address is why do Christians think differently on this? If you are perfectly able to understand what I'm talking about in question two, you are either the smartest person in the world or I am the most brilliant teacher in the world. So the reality is, you're probably going to miss some stuff, and that's okay, and I'm probably not going to be as clear as I'd like to be, but I'm going to try my very best to bring us to an understanding. And three, my final and ultimate point is, why believing that the Jews in Israel still matters to God is of vital importance to us. All right? So I'm going to be answering the question, why believing that the Jews and Israel still matter to God is so vital because it will matter to us. All right, so the first one, does Israel and the Jews matter to God? What's interesting, we are in the book of Romans as a part of our regular study, and, and, and right from the onset, Paul is addressing some really great issues right in Romans chapter one. So the history of the Roman church is Jews heard the gospel that was preached right after Jesus ascended to heaven. Peter's great sermon at Pentecost. People got saved. People were there who took the gospel to Rome. Church starts to grow in the way the early churches. The guys who are hanging out in Jerusalem during that Passover time and all that time around Jesus Christ are Jews. So they go to these synagogues All over the place, we believe that in Rome, the the population was at least 10% Romans. They heard the gospel. The church has a very Jewish flavor. But then there's an emperor who gets very annoyed with the Jews, so he kicks them all out of Rome, kicks them out. And we read about Paul meeting Priscilla and Aquila on his journey because they had gotten kicked out. I think it's Acts 18. So then the church is left to the Gentiles. So then the church takes on a very Gentile flavor. So Paul has to address all these things, these issues that are coming up. And one of the things that he makes certain that they understand, this gospel that I am presenting to you about Jesus Christ is not just a new gospel, but it's an old gospel. It is the same gospel that the prophets preached in the Old Testament, in the scriptures that you had. So what Paul was saying, I'm not bringing anything new here for you. You with me? So, there was always this kind of tension between the Jews and the Gentiles, and two main issues that Paul has to deal with. And one of them is if the gospel is now offered to the Gentiles, does that mean the Jews are forsaken? And you know what I mean by Gentile Gentile is simply a word anybody but a Jew, all right? Anybody but a Jew. You could be German, French, English, Arabic, doesn't matter. Anybody but a Jew. So we're we're talking about, so because the Jews seem to be being replaced by the Gentiles, do they have a purpose in God's plan for redemption? And one of the questions that comes out of that is, as a new believer in Christ, do I need to become more Jewish? Gentiles ask this question. It was an issue in the early church. Do we now have to circumcise the new Gentiles? Praise God, they don't. But at that time, that would have been one of the requirements. All the adults would have had all gotten circumcised, be more Jewish. And there was nothing more Jewish set apart than a circumcision that a Jewish child underwent at eight days of age. Now, the second issue is if salvation is from the Jews and is first for all the Jews, why did Israel, including their highest religious leaders, reject Jesus as Messiah, Savior, and King? They knew he was coming. It was prophesized all through the Old Testament. That's why Paul says, this is nothing new. Why did they reject, and what is the consequences of that rejection? So let's look at Romans 9 for a moment. Now, I'm not going to get too deep into our understanding of Romans because I believe the plain reading of the text says much more than I ever could, but we're going to come back to this when we get into our study of Romans because there's a whole sequence there. And of course, at the pace we're going, Jesus will probably return before I get there. All right. So we're going to look at Romans 9. Just take a look at verse 30. So what shall we say then that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? So why are the Gentiles being saved and the Jews have been working so hard for it? Why didn't happen? Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as it were based on works, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. The Jews, having the Mosaic law and all the law, misunderstood it. And they thought it was a matter of works rather than trusting and believing in works that God. Those laws are actually wonderful laws. When you read them and you go through and you don't understand. But most of those laws are based on loving God and loving your neighbor. That's really what it was. Uh, um, just someone brought a question. He goes, what do I say about this law? And he, and he was struggling with the idea of how can God be just? Because there's a law that if you own a bull and, and you know the bull is a little bit rambunctious and he goes over and he kills uh, your neighbor, you get put to death. Right? He's like, that's kind of extreme. But If you know you have a bull that's careless and it goes over and gores people, what does that say about you in that community? Do you want that guy as your next door neighbor? Right? If you have a guy who's got ferocious bit bulls next door and you know they attack everything that moves that come by, is that a good neighbor? You can answer that. Is that a good neighbor? No. (laughs) No. And it was really important that they create what's known. And Jesus Christ was asked, what is is the law? How do you reduce all the laws, right? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, love your mind, all your soul, and love mankind like yourselves, right? You had to take it over. It was to love others as well. So all those laws pertain to those things. But they gave into works, forgetting about the, the love and honor and faith part. And it says, verse 33, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Now we'll continue reading in chapter 10. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, speaking to the Jews, is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. I've I've uh, uh, flown El Al. Do you know what El Al airline? That is the national airline of Israel. And uh, I got put in what I called the Goyim section. Um, That's the Gentile section. And before I was in this other section and there was a Jew and he had, uh, he was a very conservative Jew and he had like the law written on his thing and his shawls and he simply asked me the question. I know this is going to sound really, look really weird to you. And I I said, it doesn't. I said, it's actually very sad to me that you think that worshiping and honoring God is reduced to an activity that you do at a certain time in the same way every day without truly having the knowledge. So I got moved to a different section after that. (laughs) Um, But you just see those things. But you couldn't question the guy's zeal for his religion. Right, He believed he was right and he wanted to do and honor God and all that he was doing. So they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. And that's what we know. We know the Jews in Jesus' day ignored what was written and followed the commentaries written or spoken by the rabbis. The traditions became weightier than the word of God. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law, for righteousness to everyone who believes. Amen? Christ is the end of the law. Now, flip back, I'm just going to read this uh, quickly to you before I get to uh, Romans chapter 11. Earlier in chapter 9, Paul writes, They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So when someone asks you, do Jews matter? Yeah, Jews matter. How much so? Look at verse uh, Romans 11.1. 1. And this is Paul just answering a very simple question. I ask then, has God rejected his people? Notice it says by no means. That is actually the strongest emphatic way you could say no in the Greek. It simply means God forbid. God forbid. Has God rejected his people? God forbid that would happen. Notice, he goes, for I myself, and I'm an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Jacob, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Now skip down to verse 11. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? Bing. God forbid. Right? The same way, by no means. God forbid. No. Rather... Through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? <laughs> They're still important. They are still there. Does Israel and the Jews still matter to God reading from that text? Yes. Yes, emphatically. Yes. So, why do some people think otherwise? Now, if you read the rest, I'm not going to read it for sake of time, but if we'd continue and we're going to get in there in Romans. Uh, verse 13, it's going to talk about how we as Gentiles have now been grafted into the blessing. It's like this fruitful tree that is grounded in God, in God's people, and, and these branches are breaking off and God takes us, grafts us to this tree and we're part of this, this vine or this branch that's growing. And, to, and the image is, if we were to get rid of the Judaism, what are we holding on to? The life is in the trunk. It's not in the branch. You with me on this? It's a very simple analogy. So the ultimate question is, or I don't want to say the ultimate question, a big question is, why do Christians think differently about this? Why do some Christians deny that Jews matter, that Israel matters? Like I said, if I'm able to give you a perfect answer to this, you could consider me the greatest teacher of the modern day world. So, But I'm going to tell you why I don't really argue this. I believe it's a blessing to understand these things. And I have good friends, if not best friends, that think differently of this. And my love for them um, doesn't uh, wane or change. Um, But I believe there's so much beauty and understanding that is found in understanding God's truth. And I'm going to get to a core principle, which is number three. So why do so many Christians, and depending largely on their church background, think differently about Israel? And you're you're now coming into a, a quick seminary class with me, all right? I'm going to try to be quick with this. The first reason is it's called hermeneutics, how we interpret God's word. What this means is how we study the Bible. And it's both called an art and a science. And there's essentially rules that we follow to make sense of the text. This church and myself, we hold to what's called a literal, historical, grammatical interpretation of Scripture. What that means is we let Scripture interpret Scripture. We try to work with the most literal meaning of the text. When I get to a text, the question that I ask myself is, what did the original readers of this text think it means? Right? Right? That's where it begins. If you're writing a letter to someone, you need to figure out, I want to communicate to that person in a way that they would understand. So you have to think what how would the what's the author is intent to communicate, and what do people hearing it, what would they understand? So um last week, and and there's a another side to it, but I'm going to tell you why it's so important. If I follow this literal, and I don't mean literalistic. When I say literalistic, you know, there's some Psalms that talk about the mountains will clap. You know, it literally doesn't mean mountains are going to get up and clap for Jesus. It means all of God's creation is going to rejoice for God, right? It's an idiom. So there's certain parts of scripture or poetry. Some are history some are prophecy. So you, you learn, there are certain genres that you learn within them. Um, but last week, and this is one of the reasons why I hold to a literal historical grammatical or why this influences my position. Last week, Clarence was here and he was from Creation Ministries International. And he talked about how the earth and he believes in a literal six-day creation of the earth, the universe. I believe that as well. And one of the reasons is, if you are to say that it's somewhat allegorical, or it's a metaphor for something else, when the text finally introduces us to Adam in Genesis chapter two, is it still allegorical? Is it still a metaphor? or is it still literal? You with me on this? So all of a sudden, it's like you're reading a newspaper when I read the newspaper. I read uh, uh, the comics very differently than I read the sports section when I read, you know, the dragons killed the Leafs or whatever, teams playing Toronto or whatever, Um, killed the Leafs. I don't really believe that there's these real dragons killing the Canucks, right? Like, oh my goodness, there's people dying in Vancouver, right? You understand? Like there's a context in which that story is written and I read it for that story. So when I get to finally Adam and Eve, if I believe the first six days of creation are allegorical, what's to stop me from thinking that Adam and Eve or the goddom of Eden is allegorical, even how God tells me how sin came into this world? One of the reasons I know they're true is that Jesus says they are. Jesus talks about these in the New Testament. But if you want to talk about, I'm not getting into this argument, but I'm going to say why I believe my system is, creation. if you say that creation happened over millions of years, you'd have to explain death and some of the other issues that really didn't enter until sin entered. So these are simply tools to understand. You with me? Am I losing anybody? All right. So it's how we interpret the Bible. So if one uses this method of interpretation, if you read literally the Bible and understand it, you land on the position that Israel matters. You have to. It's it's clear. You just read it in Romans. So if you don't believe Romans really means what it means, you have to come up with another way, trying not to abuse the clear words of Scripture to make it say something different, that the Jews don't matter. Now, and I know if you hold a different position, it's okay. And I'm not trying to create a straw man. I'm just doing so for the sake of time. So, but we do know that in scripture, God made promises to Israel. We believe that those who were given those promises intend to receive those promises as God said he was going to give them those promises. If we have a hold to a literal understanding of the text, this is where we land. That's why, in the Old Testament, it talks about the physical land. It talks about physical people. It talks about physical blessings. It also talks about curses. <laughs> so, the alternate way of understanding or interpret the text, it's what's known as what's called pre-modern exegesis. And basically, this is a method that many of the early church fathers used. And what they did is they used a lot of allegory, to spiritualize different things. Here's a primary example. Do you guys familiar with the Song of Solomon? Song of Solomon, the book, the love book? If you grew up in a really strict Baptist, you're not allowed to read that till you're married, right? Did you know that? But it talks about an intimate relationship between a man and his wife. If you hold to pre-modern exegesis, you would say that is about Jesus Christ and the church. Because what happens is, What pre-modern exegesis is, they take the New Testament, they take our understanding of the New Testament, and they go back and reread the Old Testament. You with me on that? So they're taking their understanding of the New Testament and it reading back into the text. And in some texts, they're giving it different meanings. They're spiritualizing. Well, look at this. Moses was a type of Jesus, right? He delivered his people like Jesus, When the Old Testament was written, and they were talking about, I don't think anybody thought Moses was Jesus. They believed he was a man used by God. So there's certain types that people use. So I'm very careful with all those type of points. So, um, And one thing that a pre-modern exegete does is they say the church is now Israel. And the way they get to this in the Old Testament... The Jews were God's people. But we now have this thing called the New Covenant, and we do believe that as well. And we know that true Jews are those who place their faith in God. And because we've placed our faith in God, we are now God's people. So what's happened, is called replacement theology. The church is now Israel. Are you with me on that? So that's that's generally the two big divisions. Hey, there's good guys who, who R.C. Sproul was one of those guys. He would have been in that position, but there's, there's always a few different variations in the positions, but they read back. Now, why? And so they would say that all the promises in the Old Testament that were meant for physical Israel are in fact not physical promises, but spiritual promises that we now inherit. So because Jesus came, we all can be saved. And uh, and so they've spiritualized those promises. That's why if you know any Presbyterians, Anglicans, and we know Catholics, if you grew up there, they baptize babies. And it's because they're part of this covenant group of people. And faith isn't the primary requirement for entrance into that covenant, but being a part of the family is a part of that covenant you with me on that one that's why we baptize people who profess in Jesus Christ so the only way you can truly be a part of God's people is through faith in Jesus Christ amen so even when I'm talking about later Israel I believe Israel is going to be saved and and God's going to save them we're going to get to that in a second so that's why they hold to this covenant now, in what's called covenant theology, the gospel is the focal point. It is the new Israel, the church, which are God's people. Ethnic Judaism no longer is needed. Now, why or how do they disagree with the passages that we read in um, Romans? And that's why I said they spiritualize Um passages and how do they spiritualize there's two views of way and you guys might this might click with you because the more i look at this there's basically two views to look at the world the greeks believed that there was a spiritual and a physical there was a dualism right good versus evil and this has affected our theology who's heard here that um god needed to die on the cross to win us from Satan. Has anybody ever heard that theology? Yeah, it's it's called ransom theology, that God needed to die on the cross to rescue us from Satan. And the idea is that God and Satan are like two equal evil powers. If you didn't know this, Jesus died on the cross to rescue you from God. His wrath that was meant for you. God didn't have to have his son die to defeat Satan. Satan's a created being. God can do whatever he wants with Satan. He's just a simple tool. God is so much more majestic, but this idea of that there's physical and there's spiritual. Spiritual is good, physical is bad. Why? Because we live in a sinful world. My flesh wants bad things things we live in stuff we see stuff broken all the time there's death decay so we start to think that that must be bad so we start to long for a heaven which is perfect amen and a lot of people have this view of heaven that we're going to go in heaven we're going to live in the clouds and we'll do whatever we want and it's going to be uh really wonderful and and augustine or if you mispronounce his name as augustine i will forgive you but it's augustine augustine is a city in Florida. Um, he came from a place where he lived in his sin and he hated his sin and he was hedonistic. And after he got saved, he hated the flesh. He hated that sin. So um, he started to look at things in a spiritual way. And, and I've seen this work out in tr- truth in churches. How many times do we want to read a passage and we want to look for a deeper spiritual meaning? Everybody, anybody ever been there? Come on we have like that's why they say the worst theology arrives in bible studies <laughs> because people start thinking hey what does this mean to me and it starts to translate into a whole sort of things that's missing what the intent of the author was and there seems to be something special in going for the deeper meaning but there's really nothing deeper needed to be children honor your parents right so This division happened. So all of a sudden, we have all these monks being created. Men that are going to be celibate. They're going to write, and they're going to do spiritual things. And we see this in the church. And you guys have heard me teach about this. There's the thinking that um, doing devotions, praying, uh, meditating, taking off to be on spiritual retreats are really good spiritual things. And they are. Hear me. They are. But it's also spiritual to love your wife. It's also spiritual to be a good employer. It's also a spiritual act to honor God and how you interact with your, your neighbor who wants to tear down the fence and put up a Ferris wheel, right? It's, there, there, there's, and, and here's one of the things that I brought up. One guy says, I like to get away. Um, and he, he talked about these treats that he did with his family. They used to go to these meditation centers. And I asked them, how would you grow in your sanctification there? Well, I got to think about God. Um, and it was really good and, you know, and I said, you want to know, I'm going to be honest with you. And I've been there. Do you know where the sanctifying most sanctifying place in the world is to be with children? Disneyland. Think about it. Your kids are out of control. They've had far too much sugar, right? They've been just on a long journey. They're they're either running all over like crazy banshees or they're tired. <coughs> And you're trying to tell me that doesn't sanctify you. Let's be honest. You got to learn to be patient. You got to learn to respond in love, to be charitable, right? Do you know what I'm saying? Like those hard things of life is where we grow the sharpest, amen? And we never think of them as spiritual, but they are. God is using those things to draw you closer to him. So this idea, though, <coughs> grew that these men would go and, and Augustine, that's where this idea came that there must be a spiritual view of God's kingdom. I haven't talked about this, but that's what Jesus Christ said he did. In Mark 1.15, he came to establish his kingdom. And that kingdom exists now, and it will exist when he comes again. Amen? And it will be perfect when he comes. But God is still growing In case you don't know, you and I cannot build God's kingdom. Only God can build God's kingdom. But you know what we can do? We can testify to God's kingdom. We can testify to how God is changing lives. It's making a difference when we share our testimonies. Hey, let me tell you how God's kingdom came into my life and changed me. Right, that's what it is. Let me tell you the story of my marriage and how I was going one way, and God came in and changed it. That's God's kingdom. You testify to God's work. So anyhow, this view that all these things spirit—they just became over spiritualized. Um, so that was the birth of what's called all millennialism. Um, and it, is, it means there's no millennial kingdom according to Revelations <clears throat> 20. So Israel doesn't figure in, so we don't talk about it. And now there's another count, 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 uh, view on end times. And, and you guys have heard me talk about this in the Revelations sermon series. It's called post millennial. And what that essentially means is that the church, through evangelism, the growth in the church, the whole world's going to get saved. And then Jesus comes back. Okay, that's what that, essentially that means. And you know what? That view is growing more steam. Murray and I were just talking about it. Whenever you say post-millennialism, you always go, those those are crazy people. Because your eyes in this world knows it's not getting any better. It's getting crazier and crazier. And we're going to get into it, why it's getting crazier in Romans chapter 1. But they, they have this belief that if we do these things, so that affects how they act. They want to they wanna get in there. They want to save. And if everyone gets saved, then Jesus Christ comes. So, you with me? I know that's kind of confusing. Can someone nod and say they at least understand a little bit of that? right? So, you have the spiritual, and I'm going to explain the other side to it in a second. And I'm going to and I'm gonna answer that question in my third point. My final and point, final and ultimate point is: why believing that the Jews in Israel still matters to God, and it's so vital for us for it to matter to us? Well, I believe that the Bible teaches what is known as the new creation model. It's not a spiritual model. You and I both know the biblical timeline, right? There's a historical flow. To the Bible. There's a beginning, a middle, and an end. In the beginning, God created a wonderful universe without sin, and it was perfect. It worked wonderfully, and we got to walk in that garden for a very short time. Then sin entered. Adam and Eve, God's image bearers, fall for Satan's lie And sin and death enters in. They rebelled against the creator. And then God's rescue plan begins with these covenants as we go through the Old Testament. And he tells the people that he intends to restore this creation, including mankind, ultimately through his son, Jesus Christ but he creates these covenants. The first covenant is after the flood. It's called the Noahic covenant. God says I'm no longer going to destroy the world. The Abrahamic covenant, you will be my people and blessings will come through you, my people, and you will have this this land. We have the Davidic covenant. That's where one who is part of your bloodline will reign forever. That's why Matthew 1 links Jesus to David. He's the promise of that covenant. And then we have this new covenant that salvation is by faith. And what's interesting about these covenants is they're all one-sided. It's not conditional on us. It wasn't conditional upon Abraham. It wasn't conditional upon David. It was God saying, by my word, I will make these things happen. And we know the rest of the story. Jesus is born, Jesus is, re- is rejected, Jesus is crucified, and Jesus resurrects. But through that resurrection, you and I can now be reconciled to God. He paves the way, so to speak. Jesus returns to heaven, and now he has sent his Holy Spirit to dwell in right. believers and to build his church. This is the age we now live in, the church age. Now, the spiritual vision model states that when Jesus comes again, we will go to heaven. But the new creation model is different. The new creation model affirms the goodness of God's creation. Including the material aspects of this world as well. In Colossians 1.16, Paul declared, For by him, Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. The creation is composed of both spiritual and material realities. And the reality is the why your marriage matters to God is because it matters to God, even though it's physical, even though in the drop of eternity it's nothing, it's something. You with me? God created it. He meant us to be glorifying agents of him. But spiritual and material realities have been affected by the sin and the fall of man, and both will eventually be restored by God. That's why in Acts 3.21, Luke writes, there will be a restoration of all things. New creation approach does not deny the importance of spiritual truths in realities. In fact, it affirms them. But it opposes efforts to spiritualize physical realities or treat them as inferior spiritual and physical blessings come together. If you read your Bibles, you'll know in Isaiah and even Romans 8 and Revelations 21, these passages speak of a regenerated earth, that Jesus will sit on the throne ruling from Jerusalem. And there will be economies, there will be agriculture, there will be animal kingdoms. This is one of the myths that people uh, wrongly assume about Genesis, that work is a curse. No, work isn't the curse. Adam and Eve were given work in the kingdom, and it was good, and it was great, and it was perfect. That's part of our calling. It's harder we toil in sin because of sin. But what's interesting in this new creation, negative consequences that resulted because of sins such as death, decay, and the curse will be removed. But the basics of the creation environment that God first created for us will be good and it will be here. So that's why we sometimes get conflicting views in churches about heaven. Sometimes it's all spiritual, but I believe it ignores the physical realities of God's new creation. So now, why is it important to think well of Israel? Before I answer that question, let me ask you a question. Do you believe God can be trusted? Do you believe God can be trusted? Do you believe that God will keep his word? Do you you believe that God will lie? No. Right? If God says something, will it not happen the way God says it will happen? Hebrews 10.23, it says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Amen? So if our salvation is based on God redeeming us, how could we hold this position if we no longer believe that God was going to redeem Israel? And let me tell you, there's far many more promises in the Old Testament speaking about the redemption of Israel than of you. We can open the books of Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Micah, Zephaniah, Zechariah, Malachi. Like if I went into all the verses, it would be too long. But these verses, these promises have gone out. 1 King 8.56 says, Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel, according to all that he promised, not one word has failed of all his good promise, which he spoke by Moses, his servant. You want to know something? A lot of these promises that God gave Israel was when they were in exile, (laughs) when they had already disobeyed. They had lost the land. They had lost the temple. They had lost their city. There was promises that promised them land. There was promises of salvation. And what's incredible, like I said, is even some of these promises were made when Israel was apostate. God said he will protect Israel and he will hold to this. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever met a Canaanite? Have you ever met a Jebusite? a Hittite, a Parasite, Parasite, not Parasite. How about an Amorite? How about a Moabite? How about an Ammonite? Have you ever met an Israelite? So here's this group going back over three to four centuries, and they're still existing in the land. I don't know how to answer that except that that has to be the work of God. That there is a work of God at hand working to bring about his will. Deuteronomy 32.10 calls Israel the apple of God's eye. Zechariah 2.8 says, Cursed is any nation That comes against the apple of my eye. That word apple, it's an idiom, but it means God's treasure, God's cherished one. And we know that God loved all the nations of the world. Amen? He did. He brought redemption. But there is a special love that God has for Israel. Romans 9, 4, they're Israelites. And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. See, my point is, friends, if God cannot be counted on to keep his promises to the Jews, what hope do we have? Is he a liar? Did he change his mind? Did Israel no longer matter? How many of you in your testimonies know you walked away from the Lord, but God graciously called you back? You know how he usually called you back? Through hardship. Hardship. That's how God is calling Israel back. Through hardship. Very fact of the matter, I'm going to leave you with two quotes. One author says, Israel's very existence as a nation is tied to the promises of God without question. In fact, they were elected by God as his chosen nation and by his own sovereignty unconditionally. He promised to bless them. The blessing that came to them in the Abrahamic covenant was not even conditioned upon them. In other words, God determined to do it no matter what they did. God would bring about the right circumstances to fulfill his promises. The last quote is a candid confession. I subscribe to many different theological sites and what's going on in the world especially. We are seeing a generally capitulation in the world of hatred towards Jews. Do you ever ask yourself, why does the world hate Jews? Why? Thousands upon thousands of years, and this guy says, Listen, I'm an all-millennial in my eschatology, and I will still tell you this. I don't know how to account for consistent and resurgent anti-Semitism apart from the demonic hatred of Jesus' bloodline. Y'all can think I'm foolish or whatever, but what we're seeing is not reducible to earthly geopolitical dynamics alone. My friends, there is a creation that is earthly that God is bringing about, but there is a spiritual warfare that is fighting all around us to kill the people who will usher in the promises of God to us and attempt to make God a liar. Let's pray. Dear Lord, Heavenly Father, I just pray that even with all these words and these technicalities that there would be understanding, there would be blessing in knowing that, You are good. We just look back at Dave's prayer, the promises that God makes us as believers. And, Father, the reality is even though we are saved, we still fall. We sin. If you could take them away, what would be that sin that would cause them? Is it just simple unbelief that I don't trust them enough to thank them for my food? Or does it have to be something major? The fact there is is that you're the one who holds us, Father, That's why Jude simply says, you're the one who holds us and presents us to your Father. God, we may not understand everything that we read about these events, but let us know that there's no event in this world that you're not a part of. And I do believe you mean to save your people, the Jews. And although they have been almost supernaturally stubborn and reluctant to the gospel, we give you thanks because we were able to be saved by it because of their rejection. And we are blessed. But as Paul states, there's a jealousy there, and I pray at some time they break. And every single voice in Israel, every Jew around the world, will simply state that Jesus Christ is Lord. Father, let us pray to that end. Let us pray for our own lives, our own... Promises that you've made us, may you hold us and keep fast the knowledge of your word and the knowledge of your goodness that you have to us, even in Squamish, which seems to be removed from much of the conflict of this world. Let us not be spoiled and not appreciate what we have and let us be thankful. There's still people here who are desperately lost and are in desperate need of a sinner, a savior. God, we love you and we hold fast to you in your holy name. Amen.